I'm going to talk today about the um, effects of childhood and adult socioeconomic factors on BMI trajectories from late adolescence to midlife. Um, I guess before I start, I, get, uh, I should acknowledge my funding source, which is the Nutrition Center. I received a seed grant, I believe in 2008, to conduct this research. And so using that money, I have been able to put this together. I do want to mention, kind of preface this by saying this is preliminary work. So if you have any um, suggestions, please feel free to make those comments because I haven't had a chance to really sit with this data yet and really think about what my findings mean. So if you have any suggestions, that would be great. Okay. Let's see. Now, I'm sure most of you are aware that there has been a rapid increase in childhood and adolescent overweight in recent decades. Uh, and there is also evidence that overweight in childhood and adolescence tracks into adulthood, meaning that if you are at higher risk of being overweight or obese in childhood, you're also at higher risk in adulthood. Um, sorry, I still have to catch my breath from running up three flights of stairs. Okay, um, there are of course some methodological limitations with this research. The majority of this research relies on one or two observations of weight in childhood or adolescence and one or two observations of weight in adulthood. And obviously if you only have one observation at each time point, the likelihood of finding spurious findings increases greatly. Um, for the studies that actually do use multiple observations across the life course, they still um, suffer from shortcomings frequently. They often do not exploit the longitudinal nature of the data. That, that is, they don't assess intra-individual change over time. They focus on changes in obesity during one developmental stage only, such as in childhood or adulthood or they rely on small geographically distinct samples with minimal generalizability to the US. Of course, I'm sure we're also aware that there are significant racial ethnic disparities in risk of overweight and obesity in the US. Um, typically, um, black and Hispanics are more likely to be overweight or obese than whites. Of course, this, the strength of this association tends to vary by gender. These racial differences seem to be stronger among women than among men. Um, there's also some research that suggests that the gap can increase over adulthood. That is, those people, who, um, black and Hispanics, the disparity grows larger as they grow older between black and Hispanics and whites. There's also some research that suggests that that, that happens with SES disparities as well. So those people who are at who have less education or lower income are at greater risk, and then over time, that disparity widens. Of course, these uh, studies do suffer from limitations as well, and the, the findings are inconsistent, and that's possibly due to the fact that the studies can, a lot of time, utilizes these small samples again, and so you don't know whether the findings are applicable to the greater population or just to that particular context. A few studies have looked at whether multiple levels of advantage or disadvantage um, is associated with BMI. That is, whether the association of SES varies by race ethnicity. And of course, again, the results are rather inconsistent. This, this body of research is quite frustrating <laughs> to try to understand because it seems that you could find a study that says one thing and another study that says completely the opposite. So 
this, hold on a second. Um, oh, this is very sensitive. This project draws upon um, two theories. The first theory is cumulative inequality theory, which was um, proposed by Ferraro and Shippey as an extension to existing cumulative advantage-disadvantage theory. Cumulative advantage-disadvantage theory has really been um, developed by Dale Danifer, who's a gerontologist, and Angela O'Rand. Danifer defines cumulative advantage-disadvantage as a systematic tendency for in inter-individual divergence in a given characteristic such as health, money, status, with the passage of time. Now, because these are gerontologists and sociologists by training, a lot of the emphasis is looking at social inequalities over time and also in terms of economic inequalities and how they diverge over time. Although this has found its way into the health literature. So the emphasis in cumulative inequality theory is on how macrostructural factors influence aging. According to cumulative inequality theory, social forces shape and are central to the accumulation of inequality across the life course. Such inequalities can be measured in terms of social, economic, or health inequalities. In addition, cumulative inequality theory contends that childhood experiences are important for understanding adult experiences and that the use of longitudinal studies are necessary to fully understand how inequality shapes population health as individuals grow older. Most of the studies examining cumulative inequalities in health have focused on how adult education or adult income um, is associated with widening disparities in health as people grow older. Uh, the theory contends that low income or low education um, or people with low income or low education um, experience an accumulation of advantages over their life courses and exposure to stressors which can then impact health and lead to these widening disparities between these groups. What has been lacking in this body of literature, however, is the inquiry into the possible differential effects of SES on health by other aspects of status, such as race and gender. It is quite possible that the health promotive effects of higher education, for example, may not be equally experienced by all racial groups or by, by women as compared to men. So because of that, this project also draws upon work by intersectionality intersectional theorists. According to intersectionality theory, individuals are situated at the, at the intersections of multiple levels of inequalities. And that this requires that health researchers consider how multiple dimensions of inequality influence health. So although our statistical models uh, are generally easier to interpret when we just look at the independent effects of SES or race or gender, uh, this theory suggests that is actually you may be leading to misspecified models if the, if the effect of SES, for instance, varies by gender or by race ethnicity. So in order to do this type of research, one of the problems in quantitative, um, in quantitative research is that it requires large data sets in order to look at these interactions because you're going to have to look at two and three-way interactions. So a lot of times quantitative researchers ignore ignore these types of um, effects. So the purpose of this project is to examine how BMI trajectories vary from late adolescence to midlife by race, ethnicity, gender, and life course SES. I ask four main questions. First, do disparities widen as would be suggested, suggested by cumulative inequality theory? And if so, if so how? Um, does childhood SES have an association with BMI trajectories independent of adult SES? Does adult SES have um, 
in association with BMI, independent of childhood SES, and does the association between SES and BMI vary by race, ethnicity, and is that difference um, um, different by gender as well? So I used the National Longitudinal Study of Youth, which is a nationally representative sample of individuals who were 14 to 21 years old in 1979, which was the baseline interview. I analyzed years in which weight and height were reported. That started in 1981. It was variable through the early, from the, through the 80s and the early 90s, and then after 1994, it was collected every two years. There's a total of 15 waves of data on BMI. Uh, the retention rate in the NLSY is approximately 77% by 2006. The data is still is being updated every other year, so it's an ongoing survey. And during the survey years under investigation, there was minimal mortality. Approximately 335 respondents died, and that equals about 3.7% of the sample. In order to be included in, in the sample that I used, respondents had to be interviewed at least once in the years that weight and height were reported. They needed to self-report as non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, or Hispanic. And for those who were pregnant, we dropped their observations. So we didn't drop their entire body of observations, just the observations for which they were pregnant. This resulted in 9,048 respondents. 70% um, of the sample completed at least 11 waves. And remember, there's a total of 15 that could be completed. So it's pretty good. The dependent variable is body mass index calculated from the self-reported measures of height and weight. Include the independent variables, which are the ones that I'm most interested in, is age, which is my measure of time, age squared, race, ethnicity, and all analysis are stratified by gender, mother's education measured as years of schooling completed, and it's a continuous variable, and respondent's education also measured as years of schooling completed, which is also a continuous variable. Some of the covariates that I included that I thought might be related to BMI or related to educational attainment, which is our key independent variable, include parents' immigration status, respondents' immigration status, the region that they lived in at age 14, whether it was urban or rural, their family structures, so did they live in a two-parent household or not, um, their expectations to go to college, uh, high school curriculum measured as um, whether they took any remedial classes during high school, and that was reported by the school administrator, and also reported by the school administrator was information on high school demographics. Okay. Other, other covariates, which are time varying, include respondents' occupational status in each year, uh, marital status, and whether they lived in an urban or rural area. I also adjust for birth cohort, as we all know that there are secular trends in obesity, and so it's important to consider the fact that the, the age effects may be um, confounded by cohort effects, and so that's why I decided to um, adjust for cohort. And then mortality, I also included that in the model uh, in, case that, in case there was any bias related to mortality in BMI. I specified a random coefficient model, which is also called a growth model or a two-level HLM model, depending on which discipline you are in. Um, this just says that BMI at, for individual I at time T is a function of a bunch of time-invariant covariates that I listed and a function of time-varying covariates. And then there are two random effects that are specified, one for the intercept and one for the age effect. 
and this, uh, this allows there to be vari variation across individuals in their um, trajectories of BMI. Okay, so in order to test the questions that I proposed, I include a number of interaction terms. I interact race with age, mother's education, and respondent's education with age, and I also include um, uh, interactions between race and mother's education, race and respondent's education, and three-way interactions between race, mother's education, and age, and race, respondent's education, and age. Those tell, that will tell us whether BMI change varies as a function of mother's education and whether that, that variance is different by race. My water went in my eye. Okay, so um, rather than going through all the descriptives of the, um, the data, I just put up some descriptives for the dependent variables and our two main independent variables. Here you see that regardless of gender, racial differences in BMI, mother's education, and respondent's education are significantly different. Whites report lower BMI. Um, they have mothers with greater amounts of education and they have completed more years of schooling than blacks or Hispanics. And all of these are significant at the .001 level. Okay, so rather than showing you a bunch of numbers, I have pretty graphs for you. Um, these are trajectories, average BMI trajectories for female respondents by race, ethnicity. This is my most simple model, which only adjusts for birth cohorts mortality and immigrant status. And here you see that as respondents are growing older, there, there is a growing gap between the white respondents and the um, black and Hispanic respondents over time. For men, the racial disparities aren't quite as large, which is actually consistent with literature. Um, but, but there is also a widening gap between whites and blacks and Hispanics and it was statistically significant. Okay. So this model adjusts for all of the covariates I talked about already, and it's the average BMI trajectories for female respondents by mother's education and race ethnicity, and because mother's education was specified as a continuous variable, I just picked two, two levels to, to plot, and that is um, people with ten, uh, mothers who had 10 years of schooling completed versus those who had 16 years of schooling completed. Um, the blue lines are uh, for white, in case you can't see this, for white um, respondents, the green are Hispanic, and the, the pink or reddish color is for black re um, respondents. And as you can see, there is a growing gap between those whose mothers had um, more education and those who had less education, and it's in the expected direction such that um, mother's education was inversely associated with BMI and BMI change over time. And um, I have a little blue arrow there because just to point out that that gap widens, but even though the gap doesn't look like it widens as much for the other two, the racial differences actually weren't significantly different. Okay. Now, found something a little bit different for men here. I found that there was an inverse relationship between mother's education and um, BMI, but that it only um, resulted in a widening disparity for Hispanic men. All the other, uh, for the um, whites and blacks, there was no increase or decrease in, in the gap. Okay. So looking at um, the female respondents by their own education and race ethnicity, and I don't know if I mentioned this, but 
uh, education was measured as a time-varying uh, time varying variable so that it's not just education at a given point in time at baseline, for instance. This is education in every given observation. So it changes from year to year. Um, here you see that um, education, even though it doesn't look like it's a big effect, is inversely associated with, um, with BMI. Um, but the gap between the less educated and the more ac educated actually diminishes and looks like it crosses over for, for black women. That's a significant finding. The, the, the finding for Hispanic women is not significant. That crossover, um, I'd ha I would wonder whether we followed, if we follow them over time for a little bit longer, if that would become a significant effect. Okay. And then for men, um, this gets a little bit more confusing, I don't know, but the association between respondents' education, BMI, and BMI change varied by race, ethnicity, obviously. Um, for example, among white men, more education was protective, and over time, it led to um, greater disparities between the more and less educated men. Um, in comparison, greater education was positively associated with BMI among black men, which is not, you know, not what you would expect, and that the gap between the less and the more educated widened over time, which meant that by age 50, black men with 16 years of education were at higher risk than black men with um, 10 years of education. And then Hispanic men, education was inversely associated with BMI, but that gap diminished with age. And all of those findings were significant, so those, those differentials were significant. Okay. So this is just an overview of those findings since there's a lot of disparate findings. Here um, we see that the negative signs mean that it's inversely and significantly related to BMI. Um, and obviously NS is that it's not significant. Um, I put little stars here to show which confirm or which helped to confirm my, uh, I guess, the cumulative inequality and the intersectionality theories. So the, the fat stars are for the um, cumulative inequality theory. And you see that there was support for cumulative inequality theory for women when you look at mother's education, but not for their own education. And that there was support for it for white men for their own education and for Hispanic men for their mother's education. Um, and the skinny stars were for the intersectionality theory, and here you notice that there are a number of relationships that did vary by race ethnicity. For those of you who are interested in what I also found with the covariates, because um, I, I, didn't, I didn't actually provide any estimates here, I put together a summary of those findings, and again, negative, the negative marks means there was an inverse relationship, positive means there was a positive relationship. So here you see that women whose mothers were foreign born or lived in a rural, uh, foreign born or expected to attend college um, were less like, or, or had lower levels of BMI in adulthood. Those who lived in a rural community at age 14 were more likely, or they had higher BMI in adulthood than those who did not. Um, that actually was the case for women when you look at time-varying exposure to rural community as well. Um, birth cohort was significantly related inversely, and I had defined this as the youngest cohort were um, designated zero, the oldest one had a, a measure of seven, which meant that the inverse relationship says that the older people were at lower risk than the younger people, which 
mirrors what we find in, secular, in the literature looking at secular trends in BMI. I also found that occupational status mattered for men, but not for, for women. So men who were in professional occupations and who were not working were at greater risk of having higher BMI than men who were um, working on a farm or in a labor type industry. So I guess the take-home findings would be that childhood SES appears to be an important factor in levels of BMI and BMI change through midlife, but that it's important to consider the intersection of race, ethnicity, SES, and gender on BMI across the life course. Indeed, if I had just looked at the independent effects of these things, I would have come to completely different conclusions because some of those findings would have drowned out these differences across race. Um, Educational attainment may not translate into lower BMI for black women, black men, or Hispanic men. So we need to think about whether this is a consistent finding across other, other data sets, and if it is, why that's the case. Why is higher education not as protective for these groups than for, for others? Childhood factors also seem to play a more prominent role for women than for men, and the fact that occupational status was related for men's BMI, but in a way that I guess maybe some would think would be counterintuitive because if you're in a professional or managerial job, you would think that you would have more income and more resources and you'd also have more education. Um, it's possible that because they're in these, these occupational settings that there's a lack of activity um, and that could put them at risk of higher BMI. The strengths of this study include uh, the fact that this data is nationally representative and it spans 25 years. There were 15 waves of data and it covered three developmental periods, late adolescence, early adulthood, and midlife. Um, we controlled for childhood factors and high school experiences that have been absent in other studies but, but which may influence educational attainment and BMI. And it covers the period when national obesity rates were in, um, increasing. So. Some of the limitations, of course, is that it's self-reported heightened weight data is not observed heightened weight. Um, but because we're looking at people over time and comparing them with themselves, that, that um, skewness, that bias should be um, diminished. Of course, the birth cohort only spans seven birth years. So an ideal study would have multiple birth cohorts and multiple time points to really tease out the effects of secular trends versus developmental trends. And I just wanted to point out that, of course, the Hispanic sample, there was a lot of unmeasured heterogeneity in there. Even though they were predominantly Mexican-Americans, there were also Cubans and Puerto Ricans in the sample, and I wasn't able to tease out differences by those groups. The majority of them were second generation, but it's also possible that the effects of SES could vary by nativity as well, so that's something for future research. So um, my future directions, I would say, is to finalize my analysis presented here, do some sensitivity analysis, and then submit a manuscript. I also uh, just submitted, well, I didn't just, I submitted an NIH R21 um, in October, which was scored, and with Bethany Bell, who is sitting right here, as my co-I, and Lynn Weber and Jeff Cromery as well. So we're, wait we're awaiting to hear funding news. As I mentioned, um, I wanted to acknowledge the Nutrition Center C grant and Rosme, who's no longer in Columbia, but somewhere far away, um, who did the data management of the BMI observations. And then at various points in this process, I have consulted with Ed, Michael, and Bethany. And so I just wanted to, to thank them for their time. So any questions?
That's it. <laughs> Oh, yes, over in the corner. Well, I was wondering if you have access to any kind of data on like the hours of day they spend at work or something like that, because that could explain the difference possibly for like men mm -hmm. by race that like have like um, white men can like prioritize that the clock ticking or whatever the reduced working life that, that black men Mm -hmm. um, well, I didn't look at racial differences in occupational status, so I don't know if that would have gotten even more complicated, and I just was trying to at least keep it as simple as possible. But um, uh, So I don't know if that would vary by race. Um, this is conducted by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, so I'm sure that there are lots of it, there's lots of information about their jobs, I mean, more than anyone could possibly go through. Um, but I believe that... You, they only collected occupational status on people who were currently employed, and I don't. I'd have to go back and look to see what the definition of current employment was, if it meant that they had to be full-time employed or whether it could be a part-time employment. So I'm not sure, but I'm sure it's in the data set. Yeah. But but you adjusted for occupation. You just I didn't. didn't interact with it. No. Right. So Which may not be the case, right. but but in this model, right. I was just focusing right. on education. Yeah. I was wondering, can you could you measure directly in terms of do you have information on physical activity? There is no information on physical on activity. Um, again, like I mentioned, it's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. No. So um, <laughs> so there is health status, but there like self-rated health. If you're thinking about self-rated health, was only measured when they were 40 and when they were 50. And so no, it's not time varying. I don't know why they did that, other than the fact that they thought that it wasn't important for employment. I don't know why they would think that, but <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't have time-varying measures of that. I do have a time-varying measure of health-related work limitations, which is a little bit more of a restrictive variable. It's 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 because uh, it's only related to work, whether you can work or not. So. Yeah. I did. I looked at income and it wasn't significant and I was just trying to get rid of as much as I could in the, the model. It was weird because I would have assumed that it would have been significant, but you know, I, I've also done a study looking uh, using data from the Health and Retirement Survey which looks at 51 to 61 year olds in 1992 and followed them over time. And in that data set, income wasn't strongly related to BMI as well, that education seemed to be a stronger indicator of BMI risk. So, yeah. And what kind of uh, differences are there in terms of uh, the difference between time periods and the measures? So, like, uh, whether it was uh, exactly a year, you said by biannual, it was a year, so it was pretty much two years in between kind of the, the uh, multiple groups or the multi-level models mm -hmm. Actually, it doesn't. It, assume, it allows you to have observations which are not equally spaced and equally present. So that's the flexibility 
and that's why a lot of people use growth models or two-level models because you don't have to have people with every single time point and they don't have to be equally spaced. And so I measured time using age and age is refined. It's, it's not just like you, if you were 14.9 years old, you were categorized as 14. It's actually a very continuous variable. I, I subtracted birth date from interview dates. It's very specific. So it, it allows for some differences in the timing of interview so that like, because they're not gonna be able to interview everybody in say March. It's gonna be, yeah, right. So there's gonna be differences across um, interview dates. And so that, that should be taken care of in this model. Yeah, yeah, Ed. I had a random effect for age, yes. <laughs> I tested both ways. I tested for specifying it without a random component and specifying it with a random component, and the model fit was better with a random component. Um, yes, Jihan. I know. I know. I was um, surprised. Right. I know. It was, and I went, I went back and I looked at the descriptives because I was like, I don't think this measures, like if you just looked at like 1981 and the descriptives, you would find differences, racial differences. And so it's, it, I don't know, it, it's got to be, it's either because of the smoothing function of the age squared term that I include that, that that kind of narrows down there at the earlier ages or it's because I've controlled for all these other things and that diminished that di the disparities early. The, the actual main effect test for significance was at 31 because I centered age at 31 instead of at age 16. So all of those findings are kind of in the mid-range of the trajectory. Yeah. So. Yeah, Ed.
can, in what way? Uh, how would you do that? I'm just, I don't know. Uh, well, it's possible that you could, depending on the software, so you could actually model whether the residual variance is increasing or changing. Oh, you mean like the, the covariance variance structure? Yeah. Okay. Or okay, the yeah. other, Yeah, the, you know, I, I did also, before I specify just a, a regular growth model, I looked at um, using a latent model and trying to find different classes to see if there was inherent vari variability, but kept coming back that there was one trajectory. <laughs> so that's why I went to, to just a regular growth model because it seemed to fit the data better. Yeah, Jihong. Mm -hmm. uh, female and the genetic association. I think that one is uh, interesting, and uh, you may, you know, uh, check it with the literature because mm -hmm. people usually expect it. You know, the people who live here for a longer time are more likely to be obese compared with you know their original place. Right. So it seems like a, a calculation is going to increase the obesity people's risk for obesity, but that result is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because well, the mother's um, immigrant status, well, because they interviewed people when they were 14 to 21, the majority of them were actually born in the U.S., even hi um, Hispanics, um, although the Hispanics were more likely to be born outside of the U.S. than the whites or the blacks. So, so um, some of it could just be that they were uh, exposed, yeah, I don't know, because the mother's, it's the mother's nativity status that's actually related and not the respondents' nativity stats. That was unrelated. So I'm wondering, so it's not really it's about the respondents' acculturation, but rather the mothers. And it's possible, too, that because this was at 1979, and so obviously they probably immigrated at some point before, and the immigration laws were totally different, and there was, it was just different that there might be some, some period effects, too, not just that relationship. Yeah, I control for whether they were born outside the U.S. or if they were born in the U.S. Yeah, it wasn't significant. They didn't give any further detail about the countries or the areas they were born in. That's restricted. <laughs> so I guess because there's so few of them that I could have figured out who they were, I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah. Other questions? Okay, well, thank you for um, your feedback. I appreciate it.